Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Multifamily Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wilbur, and today we're back with a session focused on centralized marketing. I was lucky to sit down with John Jordan of Go Local and Gray Lane of Asset Living. And in this episode, we focused on one of the hottest topics from Go Local's Multifamily Summit, which was centralized marketing. This is a fun conversation that gets quite tactical, but also fun to get the perspectives of both the technology provider as well as a very fast-growing operator. And I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. All right, John and Gray, super excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, uh, Grace, since you're top right for me, would you mind maybe to start with a little bit of an introduction of who you are and what you're doing today? Sure. Uh, my name is Gray Lane. I am Director of Digital Marketing at Asset Living. Um, came by way of JMG Realty um, out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, been in the space for about eight years. Started as a social media internet marketing specialist, and now I get to wear a lot more hats. And I'm essentially responsible for overseeing the digital marketing strategy for um, a significant portion of the asset living portfolio, which, as we know, is big and getting bigger. <laughs> it sure is, uh, John. What about you? Would love to hear from you today. Hi, I'm John Jordan. I'm one of the co-founders of Go Local Interactive. I'm really upset that Gray said how many years he's been doing this because that and makes it a requirement of me. Um, <laughs> I've <laughs> unfortunately been doing this, fortunately, unfortunately, been doing this for 26 years um, on the digital marketing agency side. Um, we service a variety of different industries, multifamily being one of them. Love it. Hey, I had a chance to spend some time with both of you at Go Local's uh, multifamily executive conference just about a month ago in, in Kansas City. And John, I'd love to start today with you, just a little bit about the the why and the how behind Go Local. You guys are doing some pretty remarkable stuff and would love to just hear from you on on the story. And quick tangent, I loved watching your four or so minute uh, YouTube video on your website about the history. I had no idea you started in the basement of one of your founders. Pretty cool to see. <laughs> yeah, Jason's pretty fond of telling that story. Um I always remind them that my, although we don't have basements here in Texas, that my kitchen and my dining room were also had people working out of them, but somehow the basement just it comes as a better story. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we definitely started grassroots and kind of worked our way up bootstrapping the whole thing. Um, yeah, go local. We, the three, there's three founders, Tom, Jason, and myself, and, um, we all came from a publicly held company. We saw uh, the other side of the coin and from what Go Local does, uh, we saw these kind of templated solutions for years, uh, the lack of flexibility they had and some of the complications that arose from that with, um, with the clientele we were servicing at that agency. And when we started Go Local, one of our, our core missions, our goals was to identify industries where these kind of templatized or cookie cutter approaches were, had prevailed and where we could come in and offer a more custom, more flexible solution, um, really with a, a focus on education and demystifying digital, right? Because digital marketing is, if you're not in the digital space, can be a little overwhelming, a little um, can bring about anxiety when you're trying to make decisions. And so our mission is to try to educate demystify and really help people to truly understand the inner works and inner workings of how digital marketing works. Um, and, you know, if you can do that and then identify, uh, at least for us, uh, companies that are scaling, 
rapidly, growing rapidly through acquisition or otherwise, um, we know what kind of challenges they're going to be facing and how our solutions would uniquely fit them. Uh, meaning we could bring, you know, market by market, a unique and customized solution to each scenario they're encountering. You know, it, you can't bring the same solution to the table for every market. Things vary, competition varies, and even the properties themselves vary and what their appeal is to the marketplace. And so being able to bring a flexible solution to the table so that you can alter your strategy uh, market by market is really important. And, and that's really the foundation. That's that's what we do. And in terms of like industries you serve, I think one of the things that makes your organization unique is that you're you're touching other industries. You're not only waking up thinking about multifamily. And Greg yeah. can certainly attest that one of the biggest, you know, thematics in multifamily is always what are other industries doing and what can we learn yeah. from them? Can yeah. you maybe just share a little bit about, you know, your experience in other real estate, but even other broader industries and, and the role that's played for your your team's success? Yeah, absolutely. I like to say that we don't have the proverbial blinders on, right? We can kind of see what's going on in the rest of the world. And um, and, and different industries migrate at different paces. We, we work very heavily in the home services vertical. So companies that are uh, very transaction oriented, uh, scheduling oriented, trying to get people in the door in high volume um, and, and technicians out in the field, um, servicing homes, et cetera. We work in that industry. We work in the banking financial sector, very highly regulated, a lot of controls and compliance and other things you got to kind of manage your way through from a marketing perspective that create kind of internal obstacles to your success externally. Um, we work in that vertical. Uh, akin, a, a close cousin, if you will, to the multifamily industry, we work in the self-storage vertical. Um, you know, you're leasing spaces instead of leasing apartments. Um, and so there's there's a lot of commonalities. And even in some of the software side of it, um, companies that kind of service both sides, both industries, um, very, very, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people ask me all the time, hey, you're you're in banking, you're in pest control, you're in storage, multifamily, where's the rhyme or reason to that? Like, why are all these companies, why are you in these industries that you're in? Um, it does seem on the surface a little uh, disparate, but it really is truly, these companies are all facing the same thing, same challenges. All these industries have a handful of public companies at the top. The bulk of the industry is made up of small businesses and then you kind of have this sector in the middle of 100 to 200 in this industry probably closer to 800 uh kind of mid-sized firms that are growing through acquisition and otherwise and those that middle segment that's the group of companies that we really uh think we can help those are the companies that are scaling rapidly and, and they need that unique solution I, I call it a replicable success model that they can roll out from one market to the next to the next to next um, with the right amount of tweaking and changes and flexibility to do so to be successful um and so that's the kind of commonality between the industries and absolutely, we see things being done in banking that are probably going to happen in the multifamily industry and these other industries in the years to come. We see things from a scheduling and otherwise perspective in the home services verticals that could probably be applicable to multifamily in the near term. So there's there's always kind of having that broader perspective and vision of what's going on out there is helpful because you can kind of anticipate and see things that you wouldn't see if you kind of only worked in that one industry. 
That makes a ton of sense. And it probably draws a parallel into some of the change management Gray Lane's been going through, going from seemingly one of the biggest operators in Atlanta to now one of the biggest in the nation. And Gray, I'd love to hear just like what that's been. You've already named JMG, you've already named Asset, but what's that transition been like for you going from, you know, this sort of regional obsession model to now such a big national footprint? I'd love to hear what that's been like. Um, I guess in a word, really, it's been it's been really exciting. Um, I was, you know, very, very proud of, of the work that we did at JMG and, uh, you know, getting to join such a, you know, a highly regarded team with a ridiculously awesome growth strategy in place um, and really, you know, get to interface with people that are doing what we were doing in the Southeast and in Atlanta, you know, all across the country and have been really successful. It's been, it's been fantastic. Um, I have had the privilege of being able to, um, you know, learn and kind of start to bounce ideas off of an interface with people that I know are immeasurably smarter than, than myself, uh, which is always a good thing. Um, and all in all, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's really been interesting to see how we can kind of fit into this, um, you know, this, this much larger entity and who is really, you know, taking the third party management space by storm. Um, so, you know, uh, we're about a year into this thing and really, really proud to be able to wave the asset banner. Um, I think that, you know, um, from the work that we were doing at JMG, we've just been able to really kick it into high gear with, uh, you know, economies of scale and much more resources and really just a rock star team. It's uh it's been fantastic. It's been a really good experience so far. So um very pleased with every with everything that's happened. That's awesome, man. Well hey, last last month when we were all together, one of the big topics of conversation uh, at the summit in Kansas was was really all things centralization. I'd say there was a pretty wild focus on marketing and the opportunity to really streamline, you know, how you're marketing your communities and making the most of the power of your domain. But we certainly parlayed that into conversations around operations and leasing and, and other topics as well. But John, I'd love to maybe start here with you, just maybe some definition, almost like table setting, and then we'll hit gray. Like, would you mind just sort of setting the table of what centralization, especially in the realm of marketing, means to you and go local? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. We've been talking centralization now for the better part of a couple of years with different companies in the industry. And um, you always I can measure the uh, how it's going to go based on the initial reaction. There's there's usually a, there's one of two reactions. They either kind of have a game plan and understanding of how their organization is going to move towards centralization already in place. Or there's this kind of freak out moment where, you know, they're they're really kind of overwhelmed by the concept of centralization. And I always kind of encourage the companies we're talking to to kind of compartmentalize and kind of think through uh, what centralization looks like for their organization in pieces. Um, often when you do that, you kind of break it up into chunks. It becomes a little bit more tangible, a little bit easier to digest. How can we make that move? Um, I don't think it's an all or nothing thing um, where I know that's one of the concepts that's floating around out there. You got to do it all. Um, and that, I don't think that's necessarily the case. We've seen tremendous benefit from some of our customers moving just the digital marketing piece to centralization and, and what that means to the organization from an efficiencies and cost perspective, not to mention um, just better marketing and how they're able to you know, capture AI and machine learning in one place as opposed to kind of diluting it across all of the different um, properties and entities they own from a, a digital perspective. Um, so from our perspective, from my perspective, I guess it starts with just kind of compartmentalizing and, and thinking of 
digital marketing as a potential first step for centralization, understanding the benefits of doing so and what that that next step would look like um, to make that happen. And um, I could probably, it's a little bit of a soapbox for me. I could probably spend an hour just talking about all the benefits. Um, I think one of the most tangible ones obviously is the cost efficiency that comes into play. Um, but from a technology perspective, it's, it's that one I just mentioned, the machine learning, the AI. Right now, um, when you have this kind of decentralized environment with separate websites for all the properties, um, you're, you're diluting all of your marketing efforts because you're capturing little pieces of data here and there that are specific to those properties. There's no roll up um, of that data at any point from a Google perspective. And so being able to centralize, put everything under one domain means all your data is collected in one place. And there's much more power, much more impact behind that from a marketing perspective um, that leads to lower cost per leads, lower cost uh, ultimately per lease, um, and, and just better understanding of what's gonna drive a new customer opportunity. And Greg, from your, your perspective, I'd love to just like follow on quickly from the sort of perspective of marketing, which was really helpful there, John. I feel like it's almost become like a controversial conversation in in our arena over the past, you know, year or two as centralization's really taken off and centralizing your marketing doesn't necessarily mean you're centralizing your operations, for example, at a massive scale like assets. Like what are you seeing as some of the core opportunities with centralization as it relates to supporting your clients, your residents, and your um, hyperscaling organization? Well, I guess, you know, when I think about centralization, um, first of all, I love the way that John just described everything. I think he hit the nail on the head. And, you know, a lot of it comes in comes down to how you approach it. Um, and he tied centralization and automation as well. And I think there's kind of two sides of the same coin. I think that my old adage is when we were talking about automation and that kind of thing, we didn't want to automate just for the sake of automating. Um, and I feel the same way about centralizing. I, I don't want to centralize things just for the sake of centralizing because it is the big buzzword in the industry right now. Um, when I think about it, I, I totally agree with what you said, Mike. There is a little bit of you know anxiety around that kind of term. And I really don't, don't think there should be. I see centralization as and from a marketing standpoint as kind of a way to broaden our reach and cast a wider net with the resources that we have. Um, and that can, and, and that can be taken in, you know, a variety of different ways. I think that, you know, the previous approach is a lot of generalism for lack of a better word and a lot of that kind of thing. But I think when you start to look at, you know, centralization and, 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 and things that can be built out for specialization um, and how to, you know, leverage, you know, people and, and, and platforms in certain areas and then kind of broaden that based on what's working. Um, obviously, you know, I think it's a paramount importance for, for an organization like ours that's, that, that's growing so, so quickly in order to be able to absorb that unit count and get everyone trained up to be able to, you know, carry that flag like I was talking earlier and operate the way that, you know, asset needs to operate. It, it, it requires a centralization from a standpoint of being able to have everyone in the right place with the right tools to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, I think by having a good centralized approach, just from that kind of, you know, starting point is kind of how um, I see things moving forward. And I we see centralization all across the board, like you're mentioning, um, obviously, from a marketing standpoint, um, we're seeing some of our markets starting to toy with the idea of centralizing things like maintenance and stuff like that, um, centralizing leasing, centralizing 
all kinds of stuff. Just really, you know, what the market dictates and what our clients dictate. Um, centralization plays a huge part into, you know, how we're able to service those clients and how we're able to accommodate what needs to be accommodated. That makes a ton of sense. I, I'd almost love to just sort of shift to like free advice. Like what are some of the barriers to entry that people throw out, John, say we'll start with you as, you know, an objection, like why they they don't want to make a change, whether it's on the technical side or more on the operation side. As you're guiding customers and future customers through maybe somewhat significant or small changes in their strategy, what are some of the things you see and some of the you know things you almost advise them to think about so they can take better action looking forward? It's going to sound a little cliche, but the biggest obstacle is always time, in my opinion. Um, there's this perception of what it's going to take and require for them to make a change. It's There may not be an objection to the fact that a change needs to happen. Um, in many instances, maybe they already know that, they've already come to that conclusion, but they're, the fear factor is what's it going to require of me? Um, and how much of my time is going to have to be devoted to make that change. And I think often that that prevents us from being able to take the few steps necessary to get the wheels in motion. Um, from a digital perspective, I think if you have the right partner, um, a lot of that heavy lifting can be done on the, the agency side. Um, it just needs a little bit of time and a commitment up front to develop the right plan, the right strategy. If you if you make that commitment up front to um, just to identify your options, first and foremost, identify that right partner, you find the partner and then devoting the right time to get the strategy down, then allow the, the agency partner to work with you to make that the rest of it happen. Let them do the heavy lifting and move you forward. Uh, Greg can maybe speak to that uh, being one of our customers um, in terms of that heavy lift of making that move and what it meant to him or not or didn't what it did or didn't mean to him. <laughs> um, but I would say that's probably the biggest obstacle and the biggest piece of advice is just make the time. Um, if you know it's something that needs to happen, even if you don't do some research, dig into it a little bit, make the time to do that. And then once you've identified that there's an opportunity, then just make the time to uh move forward with that partner and setting up the strategy and let them do the heavy lift. That's helpful. Hey, Gray, I would love to kind of wrap with you on that same thread. Just you're a road warrior. I know you're talking to peers in the industry, subsets of asset, and obviously technology partners all the time. Like what are some of the things that you're hearing about as constraints to making a change or of course the benefits and things you'd advise on when, when people are, you know, going from slowly dipping their toes in the waters to probably thinking about jumping in, you know, feet first. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, I, I think John hit the nail on the head uh, when he when he mentioned, you know, being 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 careful which of your supplier vendor relationships that you leverage to make those kind of moves. Um, obviously, you know, for, for for companies like ours that are progressive and moving forward, the suppliers that, that that we work with have to also be adopting that kind of mentality. And you know, I'm fortunate with everyone that's on this discussion today. I think we all kind of agree, and I think all of our companies are kind of on the same page as far as that goes. Um, the other thing that I would like to mention, you know, too, is I think that there's something to be said about being observant um, and kind of being a fly on the wall whenever possible. Um, be available on LinkedIn, see what's going on, see what other companies are doing, kind of look for, you know, similarities and examples with, with your current situation and how other people are going about doing it. Um, have those conversations. Um, I think we're all three of us are pretty confident, you know, being able to network and go sit at the bar and have a drink and, you know, ask a question about, Hey, 
how are you, what are you guys seeing? What are you guys doing this? Or what are you guys doing as far as this kind of thing goes? And I think that, you know, people get kind of turned off by that notion of, of just being afraid to ask those questions. And at the end of the day, we all have similar goals. You know, we all want to service our clients to the best possible um, of our abilities. So I think being observant and being present and whether that's, you know, networking in person or if that's just being on LinkedIn and keeping an eye on what's happening in the industry and looking for other models, models to follow um, and kind of look for other pitfalls that you might be able to avoid. Uh, that whole concept of don't have to recreate the wheel. We're all kind of in this boat together. And, you know, there's obviously going to be leaders and there's going to be followers. Um, but, you know, trying to find somewhere in the middle of those two um, while, you know, taking into account what the environment is kind of dictating, I think is very important. And yeah, I couldn't agree more that aligning yourself with vendors and suppliers and, and, and partners that kind of, I, you know, have alignment on the same goals and, you know, how to achieve those goals, I think, you know, is of paramount importance. Absolutely. Totally. As we look to wrap up today, I'm curious if you, if you're there, if you guys might have a question for me. No pressure. I love to ask this question just to throw a little bit of a gentle curveball at people. What does a day in the life of Mike look like on a Saturday? <laughs> Typical Saturday. Typical Saturday, I'm up around 6 a.m. and do about an hour in my, my home gym um, before the kids get up. And I definitely try to wear my dad hat, number one, on the weekends. And kids get up at 7 like robots. So come 7, uh, Nathan and Quinn are up. Try to keep my, my bride in bed so she can enjoy coffee or some extra sleep because she grinded all week. And uh, pancakes always on a Saturday. And... Uh, here in Utah, the sun, the snow's finally hit, so we're you know sledding in the mornings, probably looking for some time in the hot tub in the afternoons, and we're pretty proud of the community that we've built with some some good friends. So we're usually gonna you know be grabbing a couple of beers or 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 figure out a way to go socialize on a Saturday night. Um, and I'm an I'm an NBA nut, so if a game is on, you can definitely find me by by the TV in the evening. Mike, no college football on a Saturday. That's brutal. I know. I, I grew up in Alaska. I grew up so disconnected from football that like I'm still learning how the game works because it just was not part of my 0 through 18 by any means. <laughs> you have to come visit me in Texas. Yeah. Whole other world here, football-wise. <laughs> <laughs> John, I'm kind of surprised you brought up uh, you brought up football after uh, after Saturday oh, evening's, uh, oh, you know, no. Saturday evening's outcome. Oh, yeah. No, sorry, no. I'd be remiss if I didn't say something about it. Yeah. <laughs> I at least know what you're talking your, about. There you go. Token Texas A and M jab and Cowboys <laughs> jab all in one, probably. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> hey, Jess. Well, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I have a question for you. Um, obviously, you uh, I, I know you were kind of one of the early adopters to the podcast space and multifamily, and now there's you know definitely a few others. What has been your biggest takeaway from taking the leap into podcasting? And obviously, this is a new method or a, a whole new scenario for me to be involved in, but I'm curious what, what, what you've learned by having all these conversations and having, by all accounts, a really successful multifamily podcast. Yeah, Two, two like really cool learnings. This is coming up on my, my two years of doing it and coming up on episode number 60. Um, one is that experience creates belief. And this is a fun experience for a lot of people who have never before been able to participate 
in a podcast. And so I think it's just been a really fun way to meet people, many that I've never met before in person, which has then made that like handshake or that first hug that much more powerful because, you know, that experience of the podcast just turned into like a compelling reason to get to know someone, whether it was a future customer, a future recruit or whatever it might be. So that's definitely the the first one. And the second one is that I think it's easy to think that the channel is getting, you know, somewhat saturated. Um, but there are more than 40 million YouTube channels and, and we just crossed a million podcasts. And so to me, I'm also like super encouraged that we're early in the medium. And I think if you're using it for a specific reason, I'd say like, you should probably start with yourself for what riff about football on Sundays over a bloody Mary. And that, that kind of thing takes off with the right audience. And so, um, to me, I'm just encouraged at the fact that it's become a great experience for all of my guests. And, uh, I do think there's still like a long path forward in terms of cool ways to use as a marketable differentiator for either myself or the businesses I'm fortunate to represent. Just to be clear, Gray, I will not come on your college football podcast. <laughs> not happening. Oh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that hypothetical college football podcast would welcome, you know, fans of all institutions. So, uh, <laughs> We'll discuss that at a, at a later date, John. I love it. <laughs> well, hey, um, best way for people to reach out to you, Gray, if, if anyone wants to get in touch, I'll obviously attach your LinkedIn, but uh, what's the best way for someone to reach out to you? Yep, I would say LinkedIn, uh, rgraylane on LinkedIn or gray.lane at assetliving.com. Awesome. What about you, John? Uh, I'm a talker. So you want to call me? I'll give out my cell, no fear. 512-779-7698. You can also reach me on LinkedIn if that's your preferred way to reach out. I might throw some paid media behind that cell phone and see what kind of what kind of number volume I can drive up. I'll you see have, if Gray wants to split no the idea. bill. You have no idea how many times to get back at me. My uh, colleagues have given my number out to different people, so I get all kinds of random calls. But That's funny. Um, all right, guys. It was a pleasure to have you both on. Thank you. Uh, and really glad we were able to finally connect in person last month. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much.